0: Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, If you're a guest in the room or online, I want to welcome you. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Uh, I consider it uh, my mission, uh, the mission of the church, my mission today is to encourage people, to lead people, to inspire people, to become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ, people who love God and love the church. And it's my prayer that that happens for each and every one of us that have gathered in this space and online as well. For those of you that are in our life groups, uh, just a special note, hopefully you, you caught this in an email, but uh, in the, our notes, week three is four and four is three. So if you'll just uh, note that one change in our life group guides, I'd appreciate that. And if you'd like to study ahead for... For next week. I hope you're engaging in God's word throughout the week. If you'd like to read ahead next week, we'll be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. So we're we're in this book of 1 John, and we're calling the series Abide. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, every now and then, when I start to get a pain or I start feeling a little bit sick, I think that it's a life-threatening illness. Like, God's calling me home. This This is it. I'm checking out. They call it hypochondria. Anybody else kind of identify with that kind of thing? You can pray for my wife, uh, bless her heart. Uh, I don't look at WebMD anymore because every time I check that thing, I'm dying. So I asked Tammy, hey, can here's my symptoms. Check this out. Synthesize it, bring it back to me. So bless her heart for doing that. Now, uh, this hypochondria idea. Now, as John begins to maybe take a look at our spiritual soul, as a physician would look at our physical lives, it may seem like the, the right thing for him to start thinking well, people might start to get this spiritual sense of hypochondria. After verse 8, telling people that they deceive themselves if they say they have not sinned, there may be people thinking, am I really saved? Am I a Christian? And this is a great question to ask. And it's a question all of us need to answer. And so in 1 John chapter 2, you can turn there, 1 John chapter 2, he's going to give us a litmus test of how we can know if we're saved. And again, we need to be able to answer this question. The, the, the God of this universe wants us to be assured of our faith. He isn't interested in us guessing or, or not knowing. In fact, John himself, he said, I've written this whole letter so you'll know. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. So what we're talking about today, we are talking about our certainty, our assuredness of salvation. Assurance. I'm old enough to remember the hymn, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's ours. We can know that we're saved and God wants us to know. And this is really important. It's important for us to know the answer to this because there's two extremes. There's two bookend issues here. One issue when it comes to assurance of salvation, some people may be falsely assured of their salvation. Some people have a a fallacy faith. They think that they're saved when they're not saved. And I think that's fairly common in American Christianity. There's a number of people who would say, well, you know, I, I prayed a prayer, so I'm good. I know some facts, so I'm saved. But they may not be saved. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you may be a Christian and not have assurance of your salvation. You may be wondering all the time, am I really saved? So you have this fear. You have what I call eternal insecurity. Not eternal security, eternal insecurity. Like every time you sin, you think, oh, no, I've lost my salvation. Better pray to receive Jesus again, and you're living in fear. You need to be able to answer this question because you may not be living in the freedom and the joy of knowing that you're saved. And so as we talk today, just know I'm talking to Christians because John is talking to Christians. And so if you're in the room today or you're watching online and you're not in this place where you're a Christian, you're off the hook. You get to do whatever you want to do. But if you're a Christian, you're on the hook because there is a way for us to live and a way for us to know that we're truly saved. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we know. I'm going to stop there for a second. He says no a whole lot in this book. And the reason that John is using the word know and knowledge and knows is because he's battling the roots of this false belief known as Gnosticism. Now, it's not full-blown Gnosticism yet. It's just the roots. It's the beginning of it. The Gnostics came along and they said, we have special knowledge. We have secret knowledge. The word gnosis is Greek for knowledge. And so they had secret knowledge. What the, the Gnostics were saying is, hey, we, we realize that everybody is good. Everybody spiritually, you're good with God. Everything of the spirit, that's good. Everything material, that's bad. So everything of your flesh, that would be bad. But the way that you're going to come to have a relationship with God is by having more knowledge, more secret knowledge about this God. And so John is just combating this idea over and over. And so he says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. John, that's mean. They're a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know we are in him. Whoever says he abides, there's our word, first time we've seen it, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, let's take a look, first of all, at this idea of knowing God. Now, knowing God, in the 6th and 5th century B.C., all right before John's writing this, the, the Greeks said that they could come to have knowledge and a relationship with God just simply by intellectual uh, effort. They're, they're just gonna work on getting more and more information. They've got this mental exercise that is going on. And so they can come to know God through information, right? They're just gonna know about God. And may, but that doesn't mean that they'd have a changed life, right? You can have knowledge of God, but it doesn't mean that there's transformation, And maybe you've seen people like that, people who have a whole bunch of book knowledge, they know about scripture, but they have an unchanged heart, an unchanged life. And so the Greeks would say, well, we can just have knowledge of God and we're good. Then later that kind of changed. And they started saying, no, it's not just this knowledge of God. We need to experience God. So it's an emotional experience that they would have. And so the Greeks at this time, they they began to portray their, their God or gods through passion plays. And everything was designed to heighten the, the experience of the moment and what is felt. And I believe that's very popular in our day and age as well. We live in a very experiential kind of world. And even in Christianity, we want to feel God. We want an experience with God. Like, like if the emotions were high or low and, and we felt something or we had a, a tingling in our spine. Well, I, I felt God and I had an experience. And this isn't so much knowing God as feeling God. Then there's the Jewish way of knowing God. The Jews would say, it's not just simply having a knowledge of God or having an emotional experience with God. We come to know God through his own revelation of himself, primarily through scripture. And the God of scripture has revealed himself to be holy. And his worshipers then have the obligation to be holy. And so what John is getting across to us here, is that first comes salvation through a relationship with Jesus Christ, but that salvation is followed by sanctification. Salvation is followed by sanctification. I know sanctification may be a big word. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with it, but sanctification means set apart. Sanctified means holy, pure, morally pure, becoming to look more and more like God. And so John says the way that we can have knowledge of God is by obedience. To God. This is what he said again in verse three. And by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. So here's John's issue. He's wrestling with all of these people in the Greek world who would say, okay, it's intellectual exercise or it's emotional experience. And John would say, okay, those things aren't neglected. All those things are good, but you can't stop there. They must lead to obedience, it leads to obeying the commands of God to be holy. As he is holy, obedience comes through knowledge of God, experience of God, but leads to obedience. So let's talk about this obeying God idea. John says that we can come to know that we know him by obeying. And obedience tells us where our heart is at. And this isn't obedience in the sense of you're going to be perfect. Everything that you do will always be perfection. We realize that 's not going to happen. We realize that we 're sinners. We realize we 're not going to attain perfection until we get into heaven john 's already made this clear. If we say we have no sin we 're deceiving ourselves. later he says in john first john two one he says that if we do sin, we have an advocate, Christ Jesus, the righteous so this isn 't about perfection. this is about obedience, however. That we are going to reveal a changed, transformed heart by this idea of, I want to obey God. I need to obey God. And you are increasingly obeying him. Because faith is always followed by that work. We read this in the book of, of James. The, these works prove out the faith that we say that we have is actually genuine. Genuine. And it's revealing that we have been transformed and changed by God as we long to be obedient to him. When I was a kid, I, I had to be obedient. When I was a little boy, I had to be obedient. Because if I wasn't obedient, I got spanked. Can I get a witness? My dad who spanked me just said amen. So like, I Anybody else, so dad uh, was a, a hand, uh, right, like I'm a survivor, right, made it, mom was a wooden spoon, any other wooden spoons, any, I don't use them today, like I uh, don't want to touch it, not interested, when I was a kid, I had to obey because I got spanked, and by the way, I haven't murdered anybody, FYI, so uh, had, had, to, had to obey, or punishment. And then as I got a little bit older, I realized that if I obeyed, man, that came, that came with some enjoyment and some rewards. So I started obeying because it meant privileges. It was a sign of true maturity when I started obeying because I love my parents. Because I love them, I obey. And I think it's the same thing in the spiritual life. Very early on, before somebody becomes a Christian, or maybe they're a baby Christian, you have to keep warning them, there is a consequence to your sin, and it's called hell. It's worse than a wooden spoon, it lasts forever. There's consequences. They become a Christian, you have to keep reminding them, hey, you you can't walk that path any longer because there are consequences to that sin. But if you choose to walk in wisdom, hey, there are some rewards that come with walking in wisdom and following Christ. It's a sign of true Christian maturity. When we start to obey the words of God, we hear the words of God and we obey him just because we love him. Like God, you've said it, you've declared it, I'm gonna do it, I'm not quite sure I understand why you're saying this. I don't even know that I 100% agree with this, but you've said it and I love you, so I'm gonna obey what your word says. See, see obedience means that we're gonna obey his commands. We're not looking for loopholes, we're not looking for a way out, we're not looking to kind of hide our sin. There was a frontier community that moved out west. And in that community, they were involved in the lumbering business. In that community, they wanted to have a church. And so they built a church building and they called a minister. And that minister was loved and people really liked him until one day, he went out on the riverbank and he started watching the people in his church pulling in logs off of the river that were floating from the the village upstream. They'd pull these in, and on the end of every log was a stamp from that village and the owner. And he found his people sawing off the end of that lumber and then putting their stamp. And so he went home, and he wrote a sermon based on the text, Thou shalt not steal. That Sunday, he preached that message. And everybody in church came up to him afterwards. Good message, pastor. Way to go. Love that message. Good preaching. And so that week, the pastor went back out, and he's watching the riverbanks. And to his surprise, once again, there are his church members pulling in those logs, sawing off the end, putting their own stamp. So he went back to his house, and he wrote another sermon. This time, the title of the sermon was, Thou shalt not cut off the end of thy neighbor's lumber. <laughs> he preached that message, and that week, they ran him out of town. It happens all the time. There are people that will hear a message, have good intentions about the message, but then not follow it out, not obey the commands of Christ. I get it sometimes. People come up, good message, good message. And sometimes, some of you have heard me say this, we'll see. We'll see. Like I said, it's not a good message if I just simply kind of entertain you and keep your attention or, or you laugh or cry. It is a good message when we obey what we heard. That's a good message. When there is faithfulness in our lives and we're obeying the commands of God. You see, there's some people, they think, well, I've got good intentions, so I'm good with God. Like, I I want to do good, but they don't do good. Some people think that they're good with God and it's a false assurance. They'll they'll have either knowledge or experience. People will say, well, I, I believe there's a God. So I'm good. I believe there's a God, I'm going to heaven. Satan believes there's a God. He won't be in heaven. Oh, I know facts about Jesus. (laughs) I I believe God made this world. I think people are sinners, and he sent his son. He died on a cross. He rose from the grave. I could get an A on a history lesson. But you don't have a relationship with him. There are some people who've had an experience. I prayed a prayer. I did the magic prayer. The pastor said, I pray this prayer, I'm saved. But then they live however they want to live. Like the, The magic prayer... Allows me to just go out, live however I want to live, and then I'm gonna get to heaven. And God's like, Well, you prayed the prayer, so I guess gotta let you in. You had an experience, you had a tingle, you had a moment in baptism. Friends, we can't stop with knowledge of God or experience of God. We must move into obedience. It is salvation followed by sanctification. This is what John is saying. How am I gonna know I'm saved? How will I know? Am I just supposed to always worry about like, well, I did a sin here. I guess I'm going to hell. Or is there a way to know that I have been changed, transformed by the spirit of God and the way to know that is, am I obedient? Does my life look any different than it did before I said I'm a Christian? This is what John is getting at. You can have assurance. Facts are not faith. Facts don't save you. Faith saves you. How can you know you're saved? You are obedient to his commands. Now, don't change this around. First, you start with a relationship with him and then the obedience. You will never come to know God just simply by obeying commands. That's legalism. Legalism doesn't save you. Legalism doesn't give you assurance of your faith. The relationship comes first. I can point to people. There's this guy named Martin Luther in the 1500s. And he wrestled with assurance of his faith. He wrestled with his justification, am I right, in the eyes of God. And so he was an Augustinian monk. And he was doing everything he could to obey the commands of God. I mean, he would even go to confession. And Martin Luther was going to confession for hours because he just wasn't sure. And he would be in there confessing for hours. In fact, the other monks would get mad at him. Because he was in there for hours, and they, they, they said, I believe they called it gold-bricking. He was gold-bricking. He's spending hours in there, so he's not out here in the monastery doing other work like we're doing. They thought, he's really got some issues, a whole bunch of sin in his life, or he's gold-bricking. He's just staying in there so he doesn't work. He would do everything that he could to obey the commands of God so that he would feel right and justified before him. He would spend days and days fasting. He would spend long hours on the floor of his room in the monastery, but none of that helped. He continued to have despair in his heart. In fact, he grew to loathe God. At one point, he was asked, do you love God? Do I love God? At times, I hate him. Martin Luther he did not have a sense of assurance until. It was the words from Paul in his letter to the Romans, the just shall live by faith. And when that took root, now he gladly obeyed the commands of God. But it started with his faith. So don't hear me preaching works today. I'm not preaching works salvation. I am telling you, that your salvation is received, not achieved. Your salvation is given to you by the righteousness of Christ, not your righteousness. And the Bible says that that righteousness is imputed to us. It is given to us. It is placed on us by this good God. We receive him by faith, we get this grace that God gives to us. We then receive this faith that God gives to us. We realize our condition that we are fallen. We are sinners. We are far from God. We realize that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave. We confess that sin. Then we repent of that sin and we start walking in the direction of God. And as we walk in the direction of God, His Spirit comes in. And now He's transforming us, changing us, moving our heart, giving us a desire now to long for His commands, to be doubt in our lives. That's how we are saved. That's how we know that we are saved. And that's what John is getting across to us in this text. And just to make sure we've got it, he kind of turns it and puts it in a negative sense. In verse four, he says this, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, liar, pants on fire. And the truth is not in him. I don't know if you've ever seen a counterfeit bill how it's kind of phony, right? There's something, you look at it, it's like, well, this is a little fuzzy. This, this doesn't look right. This isn't squaring up. Like, when did Benjamin Franklin get a goatee? There's something not right about this bill. Well, that's what phony Christians are. They're, there's just something not right. Like, they're doing their best, right? They'll, they'll say the right things. They'll hang out with the right people. They'll go to the right places. And yet, there's something a little bit off. There's, there's an act that is going on. And there's a bit of phony, And they do their best to pull themselves up and try to be good and do good works and everything that they can. But they are unchanged. There is something that is not squaring up. They have no desire to obey the commandments of God. And these are the people that you end up watching 60 Minutes and they're interviewing their friends. And they're like, I don't know what happened. No idea. He taught Sunday school. The thing was, he'd always been acting. She'd always been acting. It was a game. Well, they had knowledge, maybe even an experience. But they were not saved. And the proof is in their obedience or lack thereof. Every now and then I'll, I'll hear about celebrities that say, well, they're, they're a Christian now. And everybody gets on the bandwagon. So-and-so is a Christian. And I'm always like, well, we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Because it will be lived out over time. For for all of us, time will tell. And the way that we tell, has there been transformation? Has there been a change in our hearts and in our lives? Are we truly living this out? Or are we just simply saying that we are? It was Charles Spurgeon who said that an unchanged life is a sign of an uncleansed heart. An unchanged life is the sign of an uncleansed heart. And scripture makes it real clear. Like if the thief hasn't stopped their stealing, if the liar hasn't stopped lying, if the adulterer hasn't stopped their adultery, there is no point in calling yourself a Christian because our lives must match the obedience that God calls us to. He says in verse five, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And the Greek word for perfected here is in the perfect tense, which means it has been completed and it continues to be completed. That is this ongoing thing. Like it hasn't been absolutely done yet. We're going to get that perfection when we get into heaven. But there is this working out of this salvation and perfection that God is doing on the inside of us as we continue to walk with him, which then takes us to the next portion of this verse. Like if we say we know him and he's pouring his love into our hearts and we're having this desire, like I need to obey his words. I I need to obey his commands. Now it starts being perfected. Now we start looking more and more like our savior, Jesus Christ, as we walk with him. Second part of verse 5, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought. That word ought, it's, a, it's an accounting term in the Greek, meaning we owe it, right? We owe it to Christ who died for our sins, rose from the grave, saved us, washed us with his blood. We owe it to him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And again, this word abide, it's going to show up a bunch, 22 more times in the ESV as we go through this, abiding in, remaining in Jesus. John loves this word. And the reason I think John loves the word abide is because he heard Jesus say it over and over. In fact, in the gospel of John, John quotes Jesus using the word abide in John 15, verse 4, where we read these words of Jesus, abide, abide in me and I in you. No lasting fruit from our own effort, our own energy, us trying to be good in and of ourselves. All of the goodness on the inside of us produced through the life of Christ, not our own righteousness, his righteousness. We must stay connected, abiding in him, him abiding in us. It talks in Ephesians 4, verse 30, that, that we are sealed unto the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. We are in him, sealed in an envelope. We have a destination that we are going to, and we remain In him, connected in him. Apart from him, nada, zilch, nothing. It reminds me of of Paul standing at the Areopagus on Mars Hill and he sees all these Greek philosophers and he's telling them about this God and he says, In him we live and move and have our being. Like we have existence, not in and of ourselves, but because God. Wanted it. He made us. We are not our own. He created us. We didn't come up with this idea like, I think I'm going to be born. I think I'm going to give myself lungs and a mind. No, all of that comes from God in Him. We exist and we're held together and we've got a certain amount of time here to enter into His kingdom. Same thing spiritually. Nothing good is coming through us in and of ourselves except for that which has been poured into our hearts, into our lives through the Spirit of God. And what results is fruit fruit of obedience, spirit of God living in us. And apart from that, you can do nothing, nothing lasting. And the sign of being in Christ, is says we're gonna walk in the way he walked. That's kind of challenging, right? Thinking about Jesus living from the same principles of Jesus, living as he lived, And the great thing is Jesus was just telling us over and over how he was doing what he was doing. So many times Jesus would say, hey, the things you see me doing, I'm not doing on my own. I'm only doing that which the Father has told me. The things that you hear me saying, I don't speak of my own accord. I speak only that which I hear the Father say. And then later Jesus would say, Father, not my will, your will be done. So how did Jesus live? Obediently. He obeyed his father all the way to the cross. He lived in unbroken fellowship and dependence upon the father. That seems so hard for us. It's hard for us to consent to that kind of thing. It is hard because to walk as Jesus walked means we're going to have to renounce all of the self-life. All of selfishness, all of self centeredness, everything where we think, well, I'm just going to be able to get to heaven on my own. Everything that would we say, well, I'm just going to have goodness that's just flowing out of how I want to live this life. See, we have a tough time yielding completely to God. We just want Him to take part of us. Like, God, you can have the part of me that gets me into heaven. The, the rest of my life, oh, that's me. I'm going to do what I want when I want. But we know transformation is happening. When on the inside of us, we have a longing now to be obedient to his word. And then we start walking as Jesus walked. And as we are doing that, that is when the power of the resurrected Christ takes up residence in our heart. And now we have a power not of our own, but of the Holy Spirit and his transformation in us. Walking with him, looking more and more like him. There was a little boy walking with his dad. And they're walking down the streets of Chicago. There's this big construction site and this building. The little boy looks up and he sees these men working on the top story of that building. He says, Daddy, what are those little boys doing up there? The dad says, well, those aren't little boys. Those are men. Dad, why do they look so small? Son, because they're so high. The little boy said, well, when they get to heaven, there won't be anything left of them. (laughs) Yeah. The world will know that we are believers when there's less of us and more of him. John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Less of me, more of him. Let's pray. As your heads bowed, I just want you to talk to your father and I have a question for you to ask yourself. This isn't for anybody else. This is for you. Are you saved? I'm not asking you if you know about Jesus. I'm not even asking you if you just believe in God. Or some historical facts in the past. Do you have fellowship with Jesus? Have you received him as your Lord and your Savior? It's not just like getting the right grade on a test that you're taking about history. It's not just simply having a, a tingling feeling. Or even at some moment in your life, you prayed the prayer. And like that prayer is the magic prayer to get you into heaven. I'm asking you, is there any proof of the life of Christ being lived in you and through you? Are you obedient to him? Has there been a change in your life since you said, I'm a Christian? (laughs) And let me just say, if that's not the case for you, if honestly you would say, I don't think I'm saved. Like I don't see obedience. I don't see the life of Christ in me. Let me just ask you to think about this. What would it look like if Christ were to have all of you, not just part of you, imagine the kind of life lived where day in and day out the life of Christ is being poured into the love of Christ then spilling out of you. Imagine the adventure of stepping in fully to the kingdom of God, not just simply with a prayer not just simply with a feeling or knowledge of what's happened in the past, but complete and total submission to the Father. John says you can be assured of your faith in him when you obey his commands. Father, I pray for everybody in the room, for those of you that belong to you, that they, they, they are yours And yet they have not had this assuredness, this certainty of remaining in you. Lord, I pray that you would bring to their heart and to their mind all that you have done and are doing through your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that fruit would remind them, yes, I am in Christ and he is in me. And may that bring them freedom and joy. For every person in the room that would have to say, I've not been obeying his command. We could pray a prayer in this moment, Father, but that's not saving us. It is you and you alone that saves us and transforms us. We believe and trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave. We trust in faith and receive your spirit. Lord, we want to walk that out. Not just simply in an experience or that knowledge, but in obedience to you and to your son. So, Father help us empower us as we live fully in your kingdom by your grace and for your good name Amen. once again thanks for listening if you live in the area and are looking for a church home we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services for service times and information about brcc be sure to check out brookville road.cc god bless you